0: So when I was uh, when I was in seminary, we had a professor that recounted a church member that, uh, anytime a good point was made, she waved a handkerchief in the audience. And so, you know, waving the hanky became kind of this uh, uh, note of, hey, you, you preached a good point. So we know it's flaming hot in here. And here's the way I'm going to interpret all you fanning yourself is that was an outstanding point, all right? Uh, so feel free to just wave away, wave your hanky, wave your bulletin. I attempted to correct that on the wall behind me. We'll see if it cools off uh, as, as we go. But uh, if you need to encourage the preacher this morning, feel free to fan yourself. Uh, Acts 2 is going to be our scripture text. For this morning, so you can go ahead and open there. We will will get rolling. If you've ever wondered, like, what is life like for uh, the preacher on Sunday mornings? So it took me a good five minutes from the time I opened my eyes this morning until I realized that today was Sunday and that I had to preach a sermon today. Uh, On the way out of the neighborhood with the kids this morning, I interpreted a dog's tail as a young child walking around the neighborhood at 7.30, and I wondered out loud to the kids, why is that kid walking without a parent in the neighborhood freezing at 7.30? So brain fog is a real deal. Uh, You don't always wake up enlivened to preach, and so the next 40 minutes might be interesting as we uh, consider the scriptures together and take our second step in family values series, consider the value of we pursue Christ. To frame this up, if you have a notebook, what I'd like you to do is just 30 seconds of self-reflection. Are you in a better place spiritually than you were 10 years ago? Now, some of you uh, 10 years ago was like you were nine. So I'm going to assume that you've matured to the point that you would say yes. But for others of us, that 10 years ago wasn't, uh, we were in elementary school Just a bit of self-reflection. Are you in a better place spiritually uh, than you were 10 years ago? Maybe we'll frame the question a bit differently. What's the most vibrant year of spiritual growth you've experienced? What's the year you look back on as the high water mark of your spiritual life? I'm going to guess that for many of us, the answer to that question is likely found in one of three places. For many, the high water mark was the year that you came to faith in Jesus, the year you trusted in Christ and were baptized. Area two or year two for many is a year of great suffering, where you experience the presence and power of God in a unique way. Or thirdly, for many, the high-water mark of their spiritual journey is a year of great change, where they took a significant step of risk and had to trust God to do something unique in their experience. But there's a, there's a challenge with this list. We can't go back and, and replicate uh, the conversion experience. We're, we're not stepping back to year one of our walk with Jesus. And for most of us, we can't choose suffering— uh, so, so we're receiving that, but we're not necessarily stepping into that. And, and the same is true for many examples of change that we experience. These are things that are brought on us, not things that we choose. So here's the challenge. Far too often, we spend time passively waiting around for something to change spiritually, for us to grow, for us to mature, something to jumpstart our spiritual lives. Perhaps the best contrast to this is in an unlikely place. is a 1973 horse race. Now, I know about as much about horse racing as I do knitting, so don't check out on me if you don't know anything about horse racing. You might recognize the name, however, the name Secretariat. Secretariat's oft thought to be the, the gold standard of thoroughbred horse racing. His race at the Belmont Stakes in 1973 was perhaps the most impressive horse race ever run by the 17 people who actually track horse racing, all right? Uh, Secretariat won that race by 31 lengths, virtually lapping the field. But it was his race at the Kentucky Derby that year that provides for us an appropriate picture of spiritual formation. Kentucky Derby, a mile and a quarter race, tracked at every quarter post as the horses run. Secretariat starting in 11th position at the first quarter pole and doing something that no other horse had done up to that point and no other horse has been able to replicate. And that is that Secretariat actually picked up pace at every quarter pole. Winning, running through the finish line, coasting to victory, actually shaving seconds off as he continued to run. Horses quick out of the gate, horses running the second quarter fast, but never before had a horse actually picked up pace as the race progressed. What would it look like if we as spiritual people ran the race of Christian discipleship in that manner? That we did not look back on the golden years of our spiritual formation at 18, 19, or 20, but actually finished the race with more energy, more zeal, more passion for the Lord than when we began. I think Jesus and Paul give us a picture of this. If you're taking notes in John 17:4, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus presents something of a culminating statement on his life, saying this to the Father in prayer, I've glorified you on earth. I've completed the work that you gave me to do. Or Paul, writing to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, says this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. There's reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. In a sense, both Jesus and Paul are testifying to the final quarter race of the Uh, the mission that God has entrusted to them. And surely, both Jesus and Paul's external circumstances were not the best. They weren't getting stronger from the perspective of this world. But, as Paul would write, inwardly, they're being renewed in such a way that they finish the race well. I think Jesus gives us a hint at the secret to this type of life. In the famous passage in John 15, the famous abide in me text, Jesus pictures spiritual maturity or Christian discipleship this way. He says, abide in me and I in you. I'm reading John 15 verses 4 and 5. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then this culminating statement, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's a pretty strong word of warning. Jesus doesn't say apart from me, you'll find some things to do that have meaning, but you'll miss out on other things. But it's holistic, it's total. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our mission hinges on staying connected with him, or to use the words of John 15, our abiding with him. And apart from that, we're powerless to do any good thing. Many of you watched the uh, famous National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation over the last several weeks or months. You recall the scene that's perhaps the high water mark of that movie as Clark strings the lights outside and The music builds and he calls the family outside for the what's to be the crescendo, right? When he plugs in the lights. 250 strands of lights for a grand total of 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights. The music builds, he plugs in the lights and nothing. It's one of those moments where you feel embarrassed for the actor on the screen. Nothing, not some light's working and some light's not, but nothing. In a similar way, the light of the Christian mission is powered by Christ. And without that power, we've got nothing. That's why we pursue Christ as our first family value. These are the kinds of characteristics that we want to see our church embody. And another way of saying that is if the church is going to embody it, then you have to. We want to be a people who are pursuing Christ, abiding in Christ. As you recall from last week, we pressed on the fact that all of us have a mission, a mission before us. We all have something that we're to do. And all those who have the Spirit of God are tasked with this work, the work of witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ. Everywhere they are, everywhere they go, everywhere they don't want to go, And everywhere they can get. And back in Acts, this was the mission that was before the early followers of Jesus. But but there's a problem. They didn't yet have the power source. God had not sent his spirit to his people. So what did he tell them to do? He told them to wait in Jerusalem. And he would send the power that they needed for the mission. So in Acts 1, we see them doing this. They're spending their time together. If you look back in Acts 1, you notice they're spending their time united in prayer. And then the latter portion of Acts 1, they replace Judas, who's committed suicide. They're rounding out the 12 disciples, this New Testament parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the leaders who will invest their lives in the work of this great mission. And then we pick up the story in Acts 2, which if you're kind of weighing chapters in your Bible— Acts 2 is one that weighs heavily. It's a foundational text for all that will come. And in many ways, it's a capstone text of all that has preceded it. In Acts 2, Luke recounts the scene this way. We'll begin reading in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house that they were staying. And they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This morning, I want to provide three reflections on why we pursue Christ, why we collectively pursue Christ, and why you should pursue Christ, derived from the story of the Inception of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. The first reason we pursue Christ is because Christ has pursued us. We we pursue Christ because Christ has pursued us. Let's tease that out a bit. Remember, Luke is, is working to establish the validity of these big claims about Jesus. He wanted to prove something to be true about who Jesus is. And one of the primary methods Luke uses to establish this is the, the pattern of promise fulfillment. Said he was going to do it, and he did it. So God said that he was going to do it, and it came true in Jesus. And then here in the book of Acts, Jesus said he was going to do it, and it came true in the church. So we have this same pattern of promise fulfillment playing out time and again. So what is Jesus said that he was going to do? He said it in Luke 15, 16, and 17. He said it in the early stages of Acts in Acts 1. He said he was going to send his spirit. And that's just what he does. He sends his spirit as a means of promise fulfillment. Luke again saying, look, Jesus said it and it happened. Here's the validity of this claim. And he does it at a benchmark time among the nation of Israel. We'll tease out the implications of that in a moment. But notice the first picture here. It's the picture of God coming down to visit with his people, to be among his people. This language of God coming down is a a theme of biblical theology. It's a pattern throughout the scriptures. It would be a a great homework study for you to consider the parallel times that that God comes down to his people. As I was thinking this week, you think of uh, the garden right? Adam's sin. And what, is, what does God do? He comes down to see, Adam, where are you? It's a funny picture, right? Adam hiding behind the bushes after his sin. God comes down to visit with his people. Fast forward to Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. You remember that scene, right? What are they trying to do? They're trying to build a tower up to the heavens. And what does the, what does the scripture recount? God comes down to see the tower that they're building up to the heavens. Again, funny picture. God comes down to visit with Abram, later Abraham, establishing his covenant, walking between the pieces of the sacrifice. God comes down to visit with his people in the temple and tabernacle, resting among the people, his glory dwelling with them. And perhaps a high water scene, what we just celebrated, the incarnation. God coming down in the person of Of Jesus Christ. Here again, in direct parallel, in my estimation, to Luke 2 and Acts 2, God once again comes down, this time in the form of His Spirit. The presence of God demonstrated by wind and fire, resting on God's people and marking them as His. And note what the presence of God coming down allows the people to do. They speak in different languages or tongues. The next, in the next set of verses, this is going to cause the people that are around them to think, man, th- those folks are drunk, right? Something's gone haywire. But it's important for Luke's purposes to note that those from the surrounding nations are able to hear the testimony that these followers are giving, hearing them speak in their own native languages, Apparently something that these followers could not do before the Spirit's coming. Remember, let's backtrack last week. Remember the mission. What's the mission? That we would be witnesses to Christ from here to everywhere, fundamentally. But there's a real practical problem with that witnessing task, isn't there? Since Genesis 11, the scene that we refer to at Babel, this is practically impossible because of the scattering of languages. The languages have been divided, so people couldn't understand the witnesses even if they were trying to fulfill their task. So, what does God do? The Spirit of God miraculously takes care of this, empowering the people to do what their mission necessitated. He does it also at the time when this work is best fulfilled. Look, in your, look at as Luke records. We're not going to read it because I'll mispronounce these places. But in Acts 2, following in verse 5 down to verse 11, he recounts all the peoples that are coming. Why? Because it's the celebration of Pentecost. So they're coming to Jerusalem. God unites the language and allows these followers to do what Acts 1-8 necessitates. They're able to testify to the people around and then scatter them back out. You you read the list in Acts 2, and note that many of the places uh, that we're about to read about, where the church is going to go, find their inception here in Acts 2. You wonder if by the time Paul and the apostles make their way to those places, there are people among the nations that are saying, oh, I I was at Pentecost. I remember that scene. We're going to have Titus establishing the church at Crete and you're going to notice that Luke is going to mention that they're there at Pentecost. They're presumably hearing testimony about the good news of Jesus in this miraculous thing, in this miraculous scene. Now much more could be said about tongues and much of that's for another time and place. But what I want you to see here is the connection between the power of the spirit and the work of the mission. When God's spirit comes and fills a person, that powerful spirit gives them the ability to fulfill the mission that God has put before them. None of this would have been possible apart from the divine initiative of God. He's the divine actor in all this. He's fulfilling his promises and sending his spirit to his people doing for them what they could not do for themselves. This helps me frame out what I mean when I I say we value pursuing Christ. What we intend to communicate is we respond to God's divine initiative. We respond to his pursuit of us. Common language, this is probably 20-year-old books now. Books like uh, with titles like God Chasers or the language of running hard after God. I fear if we're not careful, it can fill our minds with images of God playing hide and seek from us. Where is God? He's hiding out there somewhere, and it's my responsibility to go find him. This isn't the biblical picture. The Bible's picture of Christian discipleship is akin to that of God with Adam in the garden. Adam, where are you? Inviting Adam to respond. We pursue Christ because he has pursued us by sending Jesus and by sending the Spirit. And so Peter then As a result of this divine initiative says, the the people are not drunk. This is just what God has promised would happen. It takes a moment to point back to Old Testament truth, to provide a rational defense for Christ. And then starting in the verses that follow, uh, what's typically known as Peter's sermon at Pentecost in my mind, the, the notion of sermon maybe flattens what's happening here. At least in my modern mind, I hear that and think, well, well Peter spent the week studying, got some notes together, and attempted to deliver a clear 45-minute homily to the people. That's not what we see here. Rather, we see him taking the occasion of God's clear work among the people as an opportunity to declare the truth about Jesus. He's doing Acts 1:8 here in this moment. And the sermon makes the next clear point about our pursuit of Christ. So we pursue Christ because he's pursued us. And we pursue Christ because he's worthy of our pursuit. He's worthy of our pursuit. I'll make this claim from some select text in Peter's sermon. Verse 22 and following, let's read, fellow Israelites. So again, this is Peter standing up and testifying. People are accusing these followers of being drunk. They're testifying. You can imagine the scene. It's chaotic in a sense. People attempting to witness to the claims of Christ. Peter takes this occasion to testify to them. He says, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Let's put a pin in it for just a second. There's a beautiful simplicity to this message, isn't there? Notice the opening words. This Jesus of Nazareth, all that he's going to do in this sermon is testify to Christ. He's going to put the truth claims of Jesus on display. Notice again what he doesn't do here. He doesn't give us a Jordan Peterson 12 Rules of Life lecture. He doesn't explain all the behavior modifications that need to follow. He testifies to a person. He holds out Christ. And all that follows is centered on him. It's all good news about Jesus. He testifies to his life, his death, his burial, and his victorious resurrection. This is what we saw last week. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 15 is of first importance. Not behavior modification, but first importance are these truth claims about Christ. And all this testifies to the divine glory and worth of Jesus. If these things are true, then he really is God. And if he really is God, then we'd be wise to esteem him as such. Which is what he does if your text is going to kind of center something or, or demonstrate something set off, quote from the Old Testament and what follows. Basically, we could summarize that as him saying, that's what David did in the Old Testament, even before Christ. He knew that there was one coming who was infinitely more worthy. One who was going to sit on the throne, who was going to rule and reign perfectly. So he says, David did it, and I'm holding out this one now for you to esteem. So verse 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried. His tomb's with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him saying, uh, one's going to sit on your throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to Hades. His flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus and we're all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he is exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he's poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. So he testifies to these truth claims doing a passage that we've quoted often from Philippians 2, saying that the one who descended, humbled himself to become a servant, has been highly exalted by God, given the name that marks him of supreme worth. And therefore, we can testify with certainty that he is both Lord and and Messiah. What does this tell us? It reminds us that our pursuit of Christ is on the basis of who he is. His character. If he were not worthy, if he were not holy, if he were not glorious, then our pursuit of him would uh, be somewhat lackadaisical. But intuitively. But if he is God and Messiah, then pursuing him makes all the sense in the world. Perhaps the most commonplace we use the language of pursuit is in dating and marriage, right? We pursue someone for that. If you hang around my wife for more than 30 minutes, she's likely told you the awkward story of me proposing to her on our first date at a Wendy's uh, over a spicy chicken combo with a bacon and cheese potato, right? Right? And lost in the mockery of her retelling the story of my pursuit of her is a reasonable image of Christ. A person of worth compels pursuit. Right? In fact, we, we might take it further and suggest you can't help but pursue something or someone that you esteem as worthy. It's hardwired into who you are. Humans are, are why I think this is a Mago Day. I think this is built into us by God. We pursue what we esteem. Always. I think this is why Jesus pictures uh, his, for his followers the life of Christian discipleship uh, like uh, a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And what does the man intuitively do? He's found something of great worth, so he goes back and disposes of all things of secondary or lesser worth to claim his prize. In the same way, the worth of Jesus should compel us to esteem him in our hearts, and as our adoration of him grows, our pursuit of him will follow. So we worship to pursue. And then lastly, uh, we pursue Christ. This is a real practical point. We pursue Christ because we need help. We pursue Christ because we need help. We pursue Christ because he's pursued us. We pursue Christ because he's worthy of our pursuits. And we pursue Christ because we need some help. Let's read in verse 37. When they heard this, so. Those listening to to Peter's sermon, highlighting of Christ, they're pierced to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? It's another interesting case study. Track that question through the book of Acts. People are provoked in their heart. They naturally start asking that question, and it's a question you cannot ask apart from the work of God's Spirit. So God's spirit is ministering among the people. And they say, uh, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Christ Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. From this, uh, beginnings of the river is going to flow the birth and the spread of the New Testament church as people experience the transformation that comes from a steaming Christ. These concluding verses are very active. These are the kind of verses that set the Bible off from a common theology book. We're given verse after verse of truth about God, especially about what he's done through Jesus Christ. And then, in example after example, these truth claims are followed by life change. They're followed by practical transformation. We can track throughout the New Testament the interrelation between truth and practice. In fact, whole letters like the book of Romans are set up around this theme. Chapters 1 through 11, who is God? Chapter 12, therefore, what do I do? This pattern is followed in Acts 2 as Peter says, here's who Jesus is. And those in whom the spirit is working say, well, what do we, what do, we do? How do our lives change? The clear actions in in, in Acts 2. They ask questions. It's a clear sign of God's work in their heart. They hear a message and they want to know more. They're provoked and inquisitive. They repent. Peter doesn't give them a, a list of ways to clean up their act. He invites them to repent of their sins, to acknowledge those sins before God, and to ask him to forgive. They're baptized Perhaps the most public demonstration of our humility and need for Christ. Public demonstration of our union with him. By virtue of their faith in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit, which, as we've seen already, is going to power them for the mission. And they're added to God's family. I think Luke intentionally uh, juxtaposes this with this uh, message of being saved from a corrupt generation. They're taken out of a corrupt generation and given a new family that's going to do the things that we consider, that's going to esteem Christ and follow him. Notice, none of these are natural inclinations of the human heart. We don't naturally take steps into any of these practices. Nobody apart from the grace and power of God is signing up for repentance. Such a response is foolish if not for God's active work in pursuing us and not for his supreme worth. But based on those things, based on the fact that we've been pursued, that we've been awakened to Jesus' work, we step into practices that we know are for our good. So so we do similar things. We listen to God. We ask questions of the message of the good news We repent of sin and ask for forgiveness. We publicly testify to the work of Christ. We unite together as opposed to the corrupt generation with the family of God. We do the things that would be demonstrative of the fact that God has pursued us and we think he's worthy. So do those traits mark your life? Think back to our opening question. Are you in a better place spiritually than you were 10 years ago? A diagnostic tool is, are you stepping into things that would demonstrate you're humbled by God's pursuit of you, and you're growing an awestruck wonder at the glory of Christ? The sad reality is we have to work backwards in our outline this morning to diagnose the problem. So if we're not doing these things, then it's a telltale sign that we don't really believe he's worthy or we're not truly awestruck in the fact that he's pursued us. This is why a steady diet of gospel truth and the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the sermons that are preached is important because it's calling you to esteem him as worthy, recognizing the fact that if you do that, practices are naturally going to follow This week, I'm going to begin to send some emails out to the church with some tools for Bible reading and scripture memory and uh, strategic prayer in your life to help equip you with some practices as you seek to grow in, in, in these marks of one who worships him rightly. But friends, please hear me as you get these emails and think on these tools. Apart from deep humility of the pursuit of God, and all struck wonder at the glory of Christ. These tools are going to be impotent to bring true transformation in your life. Remember back where we started the sermon. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we have an active, vibrant understanding of Jesus' pursuit of us, if His supreme worth is growing in our hearts, then our proper whole life response of pursuit becomes as normative as the air we breathe and gets us out of the driveway into the mission that God has put before His people. So before we stand and sing and invite us to grow in awareness of His pursuit and His worth, let me give you, let me invite some pause of space just for you to still yourself and to reflect on what your current practices in pursuit of Christ say about your worship of Christ. I think that's the right question for us. Reflect on that for a moment, then I'm going to voice a prayer for us, and then we're going to stand and sing together. God, thank you for building us as predictable beings Uh, that don't have to guess as to uh, what's wrong or broken in our lives, but we have some really clear biblical diagnostics that help us discern what means produces spiritual change. And as we've seen this morning and as we know through our study of Scripture, it is our worship that fuels our discipleship. That we are naturally going to follow what we esteem to be of supreme worth. So as we think about that, God, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to grow in our esteem of Christ. That his supreme worth would be captivating to us. Captivating not just on a Sunday morning when a bunch of people are singing, but captivating like on a, on a Tuesday morning with a cup of coffee captivating. That we would be gripped by the reality that you have pursued us in our sin and offered us a means by which we could be forgiven and know you. That you did not turn your back on us in destruction, but turn your face to us in love. Would that reality grow in our hearts, compel us in such a way that we're asking, what do, I, what do I do? How do I grow? What produces greater transformation in my life? Where there's complacency demonstrated in my heart, in the hearts of this congregation. Would you, even in these moments as we conclude in song, Would you compel us to esteem Christ more, and would that be demonstrated in a church that's wholeheartedly pursuing the treasure that's hidden in the field? We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come, and they are going to lead us in concluding song as they're coming. You can stand and uh, prepare to join with us as we sing together.